Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalvo Rohash and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleague Giselle Donnelly, also from the American Enterprise Institute. And and Yulia Zorza from the Middle East Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is, for the third time, Fred Kagan, our colleague at AEI uh, and the director of the Critical Threats Project. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Fred, I think I want to just turn straight to you for for an update on what is happening in Ukraine. Um, I'm not sure I've seen the most recent uh, update from the Institute for the Study of War, but yesterday uh, the suggestion was that Russians were getting ready to an operation uh, aiming at, at capturing Kiev. Uh, do you have any updates on what's happening uh, in, 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 in that part of Ukraine? Uh, how strong Ukrainian defenses are and what we can expect in the next in the next hours? The Russians uh, definitely are getting continuing to get ready uh, to launch an offensive against or to renew their offensive against Kyiv. Um, and that involves uh, continuing efforts to encircle Kyiv from the west and from the east, as well as uh, likely efforts to storm the city. They have not launched uh, a large-scale renewed offensive yet. Uh, the Ukrainian general staff reports that they are still uh, preparing and concentrating forces, uh, as well as consolidating uh, control of some outlying uh, villages around the Antonov airfield uh, in that area. Um, the stuff that they're reportedly concentrating now is a little bit odd. Um, they have apparently concentrated some of the forces uh, from Ramazan Kadyrov's uh, Chechens, as well as some elements of the Russian uh, Rosguardia. Um, and um, the artist formerly known as the Wagner Group, which apparently has um, rebranded to Liga, uh, the Ukrainians say, I hadn't, I hadn't tracked that. Um, but those those are the elements that the Ukrainian general staff is reporting on right now as, as being sort of concentrating for an assault on the city from the western side. Um, on the eastern side, the Russians have pulled up uh, to the outskirts a few days ago. Um, they seem to have been uh, working to, I think, candidly, they're working to secure a rather long uh, ground line of communication from there all the way back to the Russian border near Sumy. Um, as well as conducting artillery preparations and, and so on. But we haven't yet seen um, indications of a very large Russian concentration on the Eastern Bank uh, yet. So the preparations for those offensives uh, are continuing, but they have not yet uh, started at, at any large scale. Fred, it, it sort of sounds like the Russians are really hesitant to push it until they can, you know, attack simultaneously from multiple directions to sort of um, give the Ukrainian defenses more than they can easily handle. Um, otherwise, it's really difficult to, you know, to see the 
to see the pattern here. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, look, I think the Russians are continuing to <laughs> try to adjust based on the reality that their plans keep failing. So, you know, the initial plan was that they were just going to drive down the highways on both sides of the river, waltz into Kiev, be welcomed with flowers and stuff and install their puppets and leave. Obviously didn't work out for them. Um, and then they started this big um, encirclement operation and rapidly found that very hard going. Then they've opened up this front on the east, um, which itself was in some respects, uh, I think, a reaction to the fact that their initial drive uh, from the north on the east bank of the Dnipro, um, you know, via Chernihiv failed and got sort of stopped up. So then I think, honestly, I think that this drive west from Sumy is uh, an, a further adjustment to try to, 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 to that failure. That's so fair. I think they, they're continuing to, to try to deal with the fact that they're, plans are successively not working out. Right. <laughs> that didn't work so well. Let's so, try something I mean, and else. Th- all yeah. this goes back to the original sin of not having prepared seriously for a big fight here anyway. So it's very hard to tell because, you know, they clearly have, they brought down that long column. There was a lot of logistics in it. There was probably a lot of combat force in it. It's really not entirely clear to me what happened to that column. We've heard lots of different reports about what's been going on there. We have not yet seen materialize on the battlefield some massive new concentration of forces. And we haven't yet really seen any fundamental change in the Russian tactical approach or the Russian combat effectiveness or anything like that. Um, So it is possible and the Ukrainian general staff is increasingly sort of hinting at this, it's possible that the main body of the Russian conventional forces, especially on the on the eastern side of the city, are sort of fought out uh, in some way and that they're just struggling to find enough combat power actually to undertake something serious. It's also possible that they realized that this is all a mess and they needed to take a few days to get organized and figure out what they're going to do and that when they actually start you know, they'll be in better shape. The one thing that is clear is that they have given, they will have given the Ukrainians basically two full weeks uh, to prepare for the defense of Kiev in depth, uh, which the Ukrainians most surely have been doing. And so I don't think there's any reason for the Russians to imagine that this is going to be other than a very, very difficult slog. If I could have just asked Fred, this is a really a point that I think people don't quite appreciate. I mean, I'm thinking back to sort of like the clearing of Mosul or even Sadr City in Iraq. If you could remind people of sort of the kinds of sizes of forces, the kinds of destruction that uh, uh, goes along with that kind of operation and the amount of time it takes, people are struggling for a benchmark. Well, I mean, you know... It's hard to have a parallel. Kiev is a city of, you know, it was three and a half million people. Um, it's large, it's dense, it's highly urban. Um, it's now fortified and prepared and uh, it's got a very angry and, and largely united population. Um, so in principle, it should be many, many thousands of troops required uh, to get in and take it. And 
that shouldn't that shouldn't be something that's likely to happen in any short period of time. Um, you know, that's something that's an operation in principle that one one would expect to take you know many days or weeks. Um, uh, you know, in principle, it's the problem. The, I mean, look, this 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 war. If we just sort of step back from the details for a minute and reflect on what it reveals about a super nerdly subject of net assessment. Um, this war is the, is going to be, I think, in many respects, the, the the classic case study of the problems with net assessment. Because if you look just at, you know, amount of force, amount of tank, you know, level of modernization, you know, all of the basic things that you would even training, I mean, all of the basic things that you would normally look at objectively and evaluate relative combat power and likelihood of outcomes, you would have been completely wrong as, as many, as military, many of his military analysts were. Um, it's hard though, because that the fact that, that those factors have not been dispositive for the first two weeks of the war, doesn't mean that they won't become dispositive, you know, in the next two weeks. And so I just, I'm at a feeling of very low confidence here about whether the Russians can get this together. And if they do, whether the Ukrainians, you know, will be able to stop them or hold them. But as you pointed out, I mean, the history of urban warfare is long, contains relatively few uh, exceptions. And I think there's every reason to imagine that if the Russians really push this, it will take them a long time. They will suffer a lot of casualties and they'll probably destroy the city um, or much of it, whether they succeed in taking it. Can I run two things by you that um, that I see as military analysis coming from the region? And I'm curious, to hear your thoughts on that, having looked at, at these things for, for such a long time. The first one I've heard yesterday in a TV show back in Romania, where I'm from, from military analysts who were saying um, that basically with the intelligence assessment from the United States, that 95% of their troops and capabilities that they had amassed had been committed, they would need another 200,000 in terms of manpower to really make a difference. And that's really hard to do. Um, And the second part to that is something that I've heard from the Ukrainians today saying um, that because they lack um, the capabilities and the manpower doesn't really make a difference, what they're reverting to is carpet bombing. Um, And that's something um, that is, um, that we are already seeing, they were saying, and that's um, that's a major threat um, to Kyiv and to other big cities in Ukraine. Um, Can you help us make sense of these two things? Well, the second one is easier to to be clear about and more tragic. Yes, the Russians are not only reverting to. I'm not sure that it's. I'm not sure that carpet bombing is quite the right term, but the Russians are attacking civilian areas with area weapons and doing fearful amounts of damage uh, to them. And they have brought their Syria playbook with them to uh, Ukraine. So not only are they uh, bombing and conducting artillery. Uh, attacks against civilian areas, but they're also using siege and starve techniques. Um, And we're seeing that reported particularly uh, over the last couple of days in the town of Irpin, which is near Antonov Airfield, uh, northwest of Kyiv, where the Russians are reportedly not letting anyone leave, but they're also not letting any food or water or anything get in. 
Um, and those are techniques that they used um, in, in uh, Syria. So they, they definitely are um, moving in the direction of greater brutality, greater atrocity, um, which is, you know, what um, uh, inhuman uh, commanders who are not interested in the laws of war uh, do when they don't have the conventional military capability to do uh, what, you know, what it is that they're trying to do. In terms of the numbers, um, I've also seen that report. It's very hard. Uh, we need to be careful with these numbers about the, the how much, what proportion of the mobilized Russian force has been moved into Ukraine. I think that there is a fair amount of combat power that was mobilized and moved into Ukraine that hasn't necessarily been uh, fought out yet. So what's, you know, one of the things that is hard to do is to find, is to figure out exactly what um, Russian units have been committed and what their current status is. And I, I just don't know. And I would be surprised if we have a a very good sense of that. Um, The Russians are continuing to make gains in in Southern Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine. Um, There is a large concentration of forces that the Ukrainian general staff keeps warning about. Um, northwest of Kharkiv uh, that seems to be preparing drives. I'll tell you, um, Yulia, the, the, the thing that's sort of more heartening for me in many respects is that the Russians continues, seem to have be continuing not to remember basic lessons about campaign design. And instead of concentrating overwhelming force on one or two axes, they continue to uh, parcel out, uh, you know, a few battalions here, a few battalions there, uh, pursuing a lot of objectives simultaneously when it's pretty clear that that's not likely to be successful. Um, so I have been, I've given up now, but I've been watching, especially in the early days of the war, I've been watching for the Russians to sort of remember the basic general staff lessons on how to do this and really focus on bringing down one or more target and, they're doing that a little bit. I mean, they're dragging more force toward Kiev, but even that they've been doing in a sort of penny packet kind of way. So it's, it's very hard. You know, I mean, it's very hard to say what kind of force would be required. One thing I think we can say with confidence, though, if the Russians need another 100 or 200,000 troops, if that estimate is right, they can't generate that, in my judgment, for months and they can't generate it in terms of having high combat power quality in a long time. Uh, their reserve system about which um, we just published a paper uh, two days ago, I think now, uh, at Critical Threats and ISW, their reserve system doesn't, doesn't support that kind of additional further mobilization in a short period of time. Um, all of this supports, you know, my my hunch about what it means that they're concentrating Chechens and Roskvardia and Wagner guys to do the assault on Kyiv now because they just don't have, you know, regular conventional combat power there. But it's, you know, the fog of war is very real. And I, I don't, I don't want to be very confident in any, any of these estimates that I'm offering you right now. To change the subject slightly, but not, not too much. Um, I want to just bring to our attention that shortly before we started recording, uh, Poland announced that it was delivering um, the uh, fighter jets uh, 
to Ukraine. So that should be that's great. I don't know between twenty, thirty planes. Uh, how, first of all, how much of a difference is this likely to make uh, in a situation in which Russians have still, it seems, not established uh, air supremacy over Ukraine? And secondly, uh, how much worried are you, if at all? about you know these russian threats of a retaliation against airfields in poland from which these planes are coming etc cetera, etc cetera. and if i can add to that just to make it a little bit more complicated for you fred we know that if all of them would pitch in that have makes it would be around 70 how much difference does that make and do you happen to know about egypt um that you know gets a lot of military aid from the United States and is said to have a few hundred of those MiGs. Um, well, I don't do want, to want to comment, comment on that. On that I, I, I don't know. And this is, it's a, look, this is all, this is complicated and, you know, aircraft are not all the same as you know, and I don't know who's got what, and I don't know what the Ukrainians are trained to fly and what they can support. So. I can't, I haven't, there, there are people who are working on that and I'm really grateful to them, but I'm not going to, I'm going to leave them to their expertise. Listen, um, amazingly, Dalibor, not only have the Russians not established air supremacy, they haven't even established air superiority. And there was reportedly a dogfight over Kiev last night. <laughs> you mean you can't list off the MiG-29 okay. countries? I'll help you, Giselle. I, I, I know that you're a ground, <laughs> your ground forces kind of person. So am I. Okay. Yeah. Fred, Fred, for those of us who are not Air Force doctrine friendly, that you need to unpack that a little bit. So, you know, air superiority, um, I'm not going to get the doctrinal terms exactly right, but air superiority basically means that you can uh, operate, uh, use your Air Force to operate as you wish uh, throughout the airspace, but that it can still be somewhat contested, but the enemy can't stop you from um, doing what you want to do. Uh, air supremacy means that not only can you do whatever you want to do, but you can stop the enemy from doing uh, anything they want to do. So they basically, they can't fly. The U.S. military has operated in conditions of air supremacy in all of its wars going back to... Vietnam? I think Vietnam. Yeah. I think Vietnam was the last time we didn't have air supremacy. Um, so like that um and of course the Ru that's been true for the russians too fundamentally is the russians have also largely had air supremacy in the wars that they've been fighting since world war ii um it's an it's an i gather from the enemy that it is an unsettling uh experience not to have air superiority and have be having to worry about having enemy aircraft show up um and bomb you or strafe you or do various other things which the ukrainians have been doing uh to the russians and it does, it's important beyond the specific damage that any given air attack conducts. It means that forces have to move more carefully. They have to be aware of a threat from the air as well as from the ground. Um, it imposes a lot of complexity on military movements. Um, so it does matter. And I'm really glad that the Poles are doing that. I do take the Russian threat seriously. I think that you know, we may well see uh, Russian attempts to escalate in various different ways. I think that we might have seen that anyway, uh, whether the Poles provided aircraft or not, because of, from the Russian perspective and in Russian rhetoric, the support that the NATO countries were already providing is crossing a Russian red line. And 
they can choose whatever red line they feel like choosing to do something that would be very stupid, um, but that we do need to be very alive to. This is not, you know, again, I keep saying Ukraine is not Vegas. And this, we should not be as complacent as a lot of people, I think, are that this conflict will stay there as long as we don't do X, Y, or Z. Uh, Putin has an incentive to internationalize this in some respects uh, for various reasons, and he may. Just, just one last observation about the aircraft is that e- even a few would really complicate the uh, Russian ability to concentrate fires from our you know, tube artillery and rocket artillery in and around Kiev. Um, you know, not only are those things, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of immobile targets when they're moving, but having to move and shoot again is, you know, requires a level of training and discipline and command and control that, Russian forces have really seemed to fall down on thus far. So again, even that a couple dozen airplanes might not seem like very much. Uh, and, there, and the Ukrainians just don't have too many other ways other than ambushes of, uh, of getting at those Russian assets, which are, I think, some of the things that they like most to destroy. Sure. Fred, um, I wonder if you could uh, give your sense of you know, not how the Ukrainian uh, forces are are doing tactically, but uh, take a step back and sort of um, digest the campaign thus far from a Ukrainian point of view. I mean, to some degree, it must be going according to how they planned, but we really don't you know, we see their plan unfolding in real time, but it's not something that uh, um, certainly that that uh, you know, we knew a heck of a lot of, about in the first place. Well, and you know, we as a, I mean, we at CTP and ISW, as a matter of policy, do not collect on what the Ukrainians are doing the, and don't try to track that anyway. Yeah. I can. Yeah make some a general observation that I, I don't recall if I've made with you before, but that is worth reflagging that the Ukrainians um, did not make a fundamental error that it would have been easy to make in the circumstance of imagining that they were going to try to stop the Russians at the border and did not therefore waste and lose a lot of combat power getting overrun with initial Russian operations. They have actually, you know, fought the Russians, you know, conducted a fighting retreat um, and take good advantage of ground and, and generally been intelligent as well as determined defenders. The one place that I'm concerned about that is they have been understandably very stubbornly trying to defend the line of contact in the East. And I, I understand that, um, but... I am worried if the Russians can actually generate combat power for deep strikes, you know, into the rear, then Ukrainian forces um, in the, you know, in the East could find themselves enveloped or encircled. Um, And I think the Russians are clearly trying to do that, but um, they have not, the Russians have not been able to generate sort of deep, rapid 
mechanized advances at scale of the sort that the Ukrainians would not necessarily be able to break out of. So uh, my initial, uh, I'm, I'm muting my critique of that or my worry about that aspect of the Ukrainian defense for now, because it's also the case that as the Ukrainians are fighting on those lines, they're preventing a large quantity of Russian forces from advancing further in and participating more in the decisive battles uh, for the Ukrainian heartland. So uh, the Ukrainians have been, as I say, I would say both determined and skillful um, and much more than the Russians expected. And um, I expect them to be very determined, but I didn't necessarily expect them to be as skillful and, uh, and, and sharp as they have been. On that note, do you assess that they have any chances in terms of combat power um, for an offensive in places like Mariupol or Kharkiv? Well, they have. They have. Um, I mean, the Ukrainians have reported several counteroffensives that they've launched um, around Kharkiv in particular. And I think part of what they're trying to do there is to um, disrupt that long Russian line of Uh, communication that runs west toward Kiev. And I I think we can see some indications of success along those lines. Um, The the Ukrainians have also been conducting counteroffensives around Mariupol. I think the the amount, I mean, you know, the Russians have Mariupol surrounded with large concentrations of forces from both sides. So I think the likelihood that the Ukrainians are going to be able to relieve the city is very low. and so I do think that Mariupol will either fall or be destroyed, um, unfortunately, you know, sometime in the coming days, although it might, I have no idea how long it will hold out. Um, but the Ukrainians have been conducting uh, increasingly, um, you know, what seem to be sensible raids. Uh, and they, they do seem more frequently to be raids and sort of preemptive um, attacks uh, than actual counteroffensives to regain territory, although they claim to have regained territory near near Kharkiv, uh, which we we have reported the claim we haven't been able to validate it. So yeah, they they are uh, not just sitting there taking it; they are also counterpunching as and when they can. Fred, I wonder if we could conclude uh, by getting your update on the sort of southern Crimea front. Um, you guys were very uh, prescient in pointing that out from the the start, and actually, our guest yesterday is the head of the of Zelensky's sort of Crimean Council, just as, uh, uh, somebody who's monitored yeah, the situation there for some time and uh, uh, was very um, uh, informative about the military buildup that's been going on uh, in Crimea over the last. Uh, yeah, eight years or so. So just broadly speaking, what's your assessment of how things are going on that on that front? Uh, and, and in particular, are, are the Russians still trying to um, drive westward as well as eastward as well as northward? Yeah, yes, the Russians um, are still basically, I think, trying to do four things with that concentration of force. Um, a large hunk of it went east and is involved in the fight for Mariupol. Uh, an increasing uh, force is just driving north toward the city of Zaporizhia. Um, we're, we're seeing reports from the Ukrainian side of somewhere between four and seven Russian battalion tactical groups heading for Zaporizhia. 
I'm I'm going to scratch my head about that a little bit. Zaporizhia is a city of you know three quarters of a million people, and I'm not sure what seven battalions are going to do. They're, they're yeah. looking for every sinkhole they can find. Well, I mean, you know, now again, I mean, I want to be cautious with all yeah. of this. They could get there. They could set up blocking positions if the Russians could free up the stuff that they've got mm-hmm. around Mariupol. You know, that this could be an initial drive that would set conditions for something that'd be much more serious. But in terms of its actual capacity, now it's limited. So they're doing those two things. They're also still fighting toward Mikolaev and driving. It looks like, I think what they're going to try to well, put it this way, if they're bright, they will not try to get into a big fight to take Mikolaev City and its bridge, which would be a nightmare. Uh, they will block it and bypass it and drive up the southern Boog River to where it gets much narrower and easier to cross. And they do seem to be trying to do that. Uh, the problem there is it's it's a it's a refused flank for those of you who you know have little round top on the mind. Um, and it's a it's a it's a longish way, um, but they do seem to be doing that in order to set conditions, I think, for a drive on Odessa by ground, which they intend to support with an amphibious landing. And they now have something like eight amphibious ships that are loaded up with um, naval infantry and stuff uh, in the Black Sea off the Odessa coast, presumably ready to land as soon as they have a reliable ground line of communication in the West. I assume that's what they're waiting for. They could, of course, always get impatient and decide that they're going to do the amphibious landing without that. Um, I think they're going to find Odessa a pretty unappetizing uh, fight, uh, especially if they try to do it without a without a reliable ground line of communication. But that's a that, that's a massive undertaking. So that's they've got a big fight in Mariupol interrogation. It's a massive undertaking to the west, and they're also driving north toward a city the size of Washington D.C., all from the same concentration of forces. Again, not something that I think would have gotten a high grade at the General Staff Academy, um, but it's got know, the most arrows on the map. It definitely have a lot of arrows on the map, um, and you know, and look, I mean, those have been the most successful drives, and this yeah. goes back to you know, some of this is those were also the most ready units. Those were the most those were that's where they actually had full brigades and full battalions and full or full brigades and full regiments and full divisions rather than this sort of hodgepodge of random stuff. Yeah. Southern military district has been training at high levels for many years. I mean, I would have expect we did expect that to be the most effective group of forces they have. It has been, but they have they have diluted it in this way by going for, you know, three or four separate objectives simultaneously. Well I I, I think Fred always begins his summaries with the next 24 to 72 hours will be telling. <laughs> I don't think I said that okay, this time. Okay. And, I'm, and I'm, well, uh, we'll see. The longer it goes on, uh, the better it is, I would say. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that, I do think in, in some, now that's, we're going to reach a tipping point there, but for now, that's good news. It's good news, except it also, I suppose, raises the likelihood of him reducing Ukraine to rubble. Uh, it's it is good news from a strictly military campaign sense, and from the standpoint of the increasing likelihood of Ukraine being able to hold off the conventional attack. The devastation to Ukraine's civilians and cities is increasing materially, and lots of other bad risks uh, are there. Fred, thank you so much. This was very informative, and the odds are 
that this is not your last time on this podcast, I'm sorry to say. Um, on that note, from Dalibor Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges which have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest, Fred Kagan. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.